Hi, I'm Katie Marquette, and you're listening to Born of Wonder. And here there is something more than just a transient experience. It's about uh, being. It's about the things that matter to me. It's about the white spaces between the paragraphs. Then God said, let there be light. It's a mistake you always made, Doc, trying to love a wild thing. It's inevitable that I should seem a rather remote figure to many of you, a successor to the kings and queens of history, someone whose face may be familiar in newspapers and films, but who never really touches your personal lives. But now, at least for a few minutes, I welcome you to the peace of my own home. That it's possible for some of you to see me today is just another example of the speed at which things are changing all around us. Because of these changes, I'm not surprised that many people feel lost and unable to decide what to hold on to and what to discard, how to take advantage of the new life without losing the best of the old. But it's not the new inventions which are the difficulty. The trouble is caused by unthinking people who carelessly throw away ageless ideals as if they were old and outworn machinery. They would have religion thrown aside, morality in personal and public life made meaningless, honesty counted as foolishness, and self-interest set up in place of self-restraint. At this critical moment in our history, we will certainly lose the trust and respect of the world if we just abandon those fundamental principles which guided the men and women who built the greatness of this country and Commonwealth. Today, we need a special kind of courage. Not the kind needed in battle, but a kind which makes us stand up everything that we know is right, everything that is true and honest. We need the kind of courage that can withstand the subtle corruption of the cynics, so that we can show the world that we are not afraid of the future. It has always been easy to hate and destroy. To build and to cherish is much more difficult. In the old days, the monarch led his soldiers on the battlefield and his leadership at all times was close and personal. Today things are very different. I cannot lead you into battle. I do not give you laws or administer justice. But I can do something else. I can give you my heart.
starting today's episode with the words of Queen Elizabeth II. That speech is from a 1957 Christmas Day broadcast, uh, a tradition that has been going on since 1932, but that was a very special broadcast because it was the very first televised. And I think the Queen very wisely took that as an opportunity to talk about the idea of continuity and tradition and what should change and what shouldn't change with such an influx of technology and and uh, just changing expectations about people and culture and all sorts of things we have to be very careful about what we throw away and of course i'm i'm sure she was thinking we don't want to throw away the monarchy (laughs) um Of course, Queen Elizabeth II died very recently on September 8th, 2022. She was queen regent of 32 sovereign states during her lifetime and 15 at the time of her death. Her reign of 70 years and 214 days is the longest of any British monarch and the longest recorded of any female head of state in history. So very, very impressive, uh, quite a figure in all of our lives. Unless you are over the age of 70, she's the only uh, a British monarch you've known. Um, and she, she's been quite the public figure traveling all over the world, making an impact on people um, of her own country and many, many of us outside of it as well. Uh, Of course, now there are many debates going on, you know, what is the role of the monarchy? Is it good or bad or anything like that? I'm not really here to discuss that. I, you know, first of all, I don't live under a monarchy, so my opinions are periphery at best. (laughs) But I do have a lot of personal admiration and respect for Queen Elizabeth II. I think she had a very, very difficult job uh, that she, she carried with a lot of class and grace and dignity. And uh, I mean, she was made queen at 25 years old, and I don't think many of us uh, put into that public of a role with that much pressure uh, could have held it together so well for so long as she did. And uh, she, she really did. I do believe that she lived a life of service. Uh, of course, she was a great horsewoman. Uh, she, as a little girl, said that she dreamed of, um, you know, marrying a farmer and having lots of horses and dogs in the countryside. So I, ha- I, I feel like I know her on that level. <laughs> but uh, she, of course, had to give up that dream um, for for her destiny, uh, sort of a convoluted way she got there with the, with the abdication of her uncle and the unexpected uh, uh, reign of her father and then his early death and then there she is queen at age 25 so so you know just kudos to her on a job well done god rest her soul so i i've been thinking about the role of tradition and certainly the queen uh you know i would say i think the statistics show that she she was very much beloved in in her country uh she's certainly uh overall i think a very well-liked figure globally and it's pretty impressive that that is the case there aren't many public figures there aren't many heads of state that can maintain that level of goodwill especially amidst scandals and all sorts of things going on she somehow maintained uh that that level of of respect from her i almost said constituents but they aren't her constituents from her from her fellow country people so I think that that's that's very impressive and I think part of it is because she is is not so much loved as an individual but as a representation of an idea and I think this is where we can really start talking about about tradition and ritual and the importance uh in modern life and 
especially in modern life, when we've been deprived of so many traditions, when we are so sort of floundering uh, uh, for continuity, for understanding, and as so many things seem new, new, new all the time, here's this figure who has uh, is representative of something stable. So, I mean, this is something I do sort of envy about the, the experience of being British, is that maybe you all don't like the prime minister maybe maybe you and your neighbor are, are of different political parties you 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 just totally differ on lots of things but you 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 all like the queen you know because she's sort of representative of british ideals there's a tradition there you feel connected uh to the history of your country um and she did very wisely uh stay rather neutral um quite neutral on 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 political matters which i think was her role it was was, she was just there to sort of support um i do think that's a very sort of beautiful sentiment from her speech that you know she she was not like monarchs of old she wasn't going to be leading anyone to into battle she wasn't even making laws though of course she would meet with every single prime minister from winston churchill (laughs) all the way uh to the to the newest prime minister i think she met with her on two Tuesday, um, two days before she died. So, uh, you know, the the amount of of time she saw is is just very impressive. So again, this idea of continuity amidst so much change, Queen Elizabeth Elizabeth II certainly represented that uh, for so many people. She did for me, and uh, I, I feel sort of oddly bereft <laughs> without her um, w- without her as queen. Even though I'm not British, I'm not, you know. A monarchist, <laughs> um, but just uh, she she was certainly a figure of of sort of goodwill instability in the world, and it, it's it's sad to see her go. But I I did want to to, to I thought it would be a good opportunity to talk about uh, to talk to talk about tradition today and the role of tradition, why it's important. Uh, and I'm going to be reading a bit from an essay I wrote a couple years ago about uh, <laughs> from Downton Abbey. So, uh, you know, properly British seems appropriate, right? So uh, there are a few spoilers in that essay. So I'll just give you a little warning there. Um, so maybe before I start reading the essay, you could skip ahead there. But um, there are some other things I wanted to bring up before that. Uh, one of which is that I'm reading a book right now. Well, it's, it's, a book isn't really the right. It's it's a collection. So it's not something you really read straight through. But it's a, it's a lovely collection um, of blessings. John O'Donohue, the, uh, the Irish poet, theologian, priest, uh, to bless the space between us, a book of blessings. And I'm going to let me get this book here and open it up to he, he gives a very interesting history of, of blessing in general and especially the Celtic tradition of blessings but he brings up something very interesting about modern life and uh, and the dearth of um, ritual that we have and how at these sort of pivotal moments in life birth marriage death we we kind of don't know what to do we don't have the words anymore and of course that is what traditions can offer us is um is is in moments where you don't know what to do or say you have uh have some rote thing that you can fall back on that that is filled with meaning it's it's not that it's it's rote in that it's it it it's meaningless it's 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 something outside of yourself you don't have to think about it um I kind of always liked that about uh, Catholic prayers. You know, there's so many, uh, you know, when in doubt, you know, a Hail Mary. You know, I'm not good at, you know, some of these 
some of these sort of charismatic Christians, they can come up with these, you know, amazing prayers on the spot or something like that. That's not for me. I need to just lean back on on some old prayers that I can, uh, you know, especially if you're having a really hard time. Um, it, it's very comforting to have to, to know that you're uttering the same words that have been spoken by people, prayed by people for, for centuries. And, uh, and, and I think that that it's it's really a tragedy that we've we've lost a lot of this. So let, let me just read you this one paragraph from John O'Donohue. Our culture has little to offer us for our crossings. Never was there such talk of communication or such technology to facilitate it. Yet at the heart of our newfound wealth and progress, there is a gaping emptiness and we are haunted by loneliness. While we seem to have progressed to become experts in so many things, multiplying and acquiring stuff we neither need nor truly want, we have unlearned the grace of presence and belonging. With the demise of religion, many people are left stranded in a chasm of emptiness and doubt, without rituals to recognize, celebrate, or negotiate the vital thresholds of people's lives. The key crossings pass by, undistinguished from the mundane, everyday rituals of life. This is where we need to retrieve and reawaken our capacity for blessing. If we approach our decisive thresholds with reverence and attention, the crossing will bring us more than we could ever hope for. This is where blessing invokes and awakens every gift the crossing has to offer. So I think that's that's a beautiful sort of summary of what... Um, what sort of uh, a tradition of, of blessing, of, of written blessings, of, of known uh, repeated prayers can offer us, uh, especially at these at these pivotal moments in life. And I do recommend this book. I think it's lovely. And, you know, he has different second sections for, um, you know, for beginnings, for endings, for, for changes. You know, he has prayers, blessings for mothers and fathers and children and uh, friends for the dying for celebration uh, for at the end of the at the end of the year for the morning and and just they're lovely um, you can also find him reading a bunch of them on YouTube and he has this wonderful you know Irish accent and uh, they're really lovely there was a great on being uh, interview with him I think I've mentioned it on this podcast before I will link to it in the show notes but that's all rather an aside but uh, you know all this, I, I, I just, I just have this feeling that that tradition is very important. Actually, one of the first public radio pieces I did way back when was um, about this this lack of ritual and how people didn't know what to do when a loved one died. Uh, there was actually a group, like a nonprofit group, called the Dinner Party, and they would host. Uh, strangers really um, who had lost a loved one for for dinners um and they would take traditions sort of from jewish traditions christian traditions all sort of just anything really and they would kind of all mix them all together and people would bring their own traditions if they had any um but it was really uh, a way for people to to talk and mourn and have a um something to do <laughs> in the wake of the the loss of their loved one I actually went to one of these dinner parties and there were atheists and I, I think almost everyone there was an atheist or agnostic or fallen away from their faith but they were absolutely craving some sort of meaning making ritual in the in the wake of a loss um, 
a, a loss of great magnitude in their life, the death of a loved one. And they didn't have the rituals, you know, they didn't have, um, there was no sitting Shiva, there was no uh, funeral mass, there was no prayers for the dead, there was, you know, there, there was nothing to do. And, uh, and I think we, we feel the loss of those things um, most acutely at, at those pivotal moments in life. Um, I, I know that I was very, you know, grateful that, uh, that, that, you know, when our daughter was born, that there were rich, lots of rituals, you know, that the baptism was very, very important to us. And, um, and just even prayers that you can pray, you know, during labor, and just, just having words when you don't have words, you know, and that, and that is what tradition can give us these symbols, these words that are beyond us. Uh, great GK Chesterton quote here, tradition means giving votes to the most obscure of all classes, our ancestors. It is the democracy of the dead. Tradition refuses to submit to the small and arrogant oligarchy of those who merely happen to be walking about great Chesterton there. Um, you know, I always love that the democracy of the dead, you think, <laughs> you think about how um, relatively recently, we've been living the way we live in our rootless, <laughs> traditionless way. Uh, it, that is that's, that's so recent in human history. And meanwhile, we have centuries, thousands of years of tradition just waiting for us to like rediscover and be a part of and that um, that our ancestors practiced that this was a way of human life um, that that made sense you know that, that we that we we did these things for a reason and we did them over and over and over again generation to generation uh, because they provided meaning and structure to our lives and uh, you know I think that we're seeing uh, what can happen when we just we just throw them aside in the name of progress or the excitement over something new or uh, just thinking that anything old is bad. I always, there's a C.S. Lewis line that, you know, says sometimes, you know, go, going the right way um, means turning around. <laughs> sometimes, sometimes forward motion means taking a step back so you don't fall off a cliff or something like that. So I really, really, really believe that about much of these ideas about tra tradition and ritual. Gustav Mahler said, tradition is not the worship of ashes, but the preservation of fire. I love that. Not the worship of ashes, but the preservation of fire. Absolutely. Uh, T.S. Eliot said, no poet, no artist of any art has his complete meaning alone. His significance, his appreciation is the appreciation of his relation to the dead poets and artists. You cannot value him alone. You must set him for contrast and comparison among the dead. Yeah, this is also important. And this really fits into um, Chesterton's idea, I think, about democracy of the dead is that we, you know, we're not an island. No man is an island. Uh, we, we live in context. We live in history. We uh, we 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 have a past. We have a future. We we have to understand ourselves in the long line of human history, not just as sort of these isolated machines, <laughs> just sort of floating around in space. Like we we come from somewhere. We come from a people. We come from traditions. We come uh, into this world um, with 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 a history. And I think that um, our failure to contextualize ourselves, of course, all of us specifically have histories and family histories and all sorts of things like that. But just contextualizing human beings um, in the context of the world, in the context of the history of this planet, uh, our failure to do that has been very, very detri detrimental because we act like we can uh, ignore um, essential aspects of what it means to be a human, biologically, emotionally, spiritually, and uh, just 
get on with it when all of human history would show us that that is not the case. Anybody who thinks that any of our ideas are new, any sort of ideas that, you know, about the human experience are new, should just go and read Ecclesiastes. There is nothing new under the sun, okay? They, all these ideas have been discussed and debated for, for centuries, okay? This has already happened. <laughs> and that should be freeing in a way. Um, we aren't confronting these things for the first time. There's a, there is a tradition of debate and thought and ritual to give meaning to these uh, to these elemental human experiences. So uh, enough of my rambling and philosophizing. <laughs> Let's uh, you know a little bit of a lighter note here um, to discuss Downton Abbey. I love Downton Abbey. I think this is a great show. Um, I think the second movie was very good. Um, did not like the first movie at all. Um, but yeah, I've just really enjoyed it. It's certainly like a comfort watch for me. I kind of, I'm feeling a time coming on this sort of fall, you know, colder weather, maybe a rewatch is, is, is due soon. Um, I also wrote another essay just about how much I love Lady Mary Crawley. <laughs> I think I need my friend Miriam to come on the podcast again and talk about that as she is also a huge Lady Mary fan. So maybe that will be um, a, t a topic coming up sometime. But I wrote this essay uh, called The Aesthetics of Downton Abbey, but really it could be called The Rituals of Downton Abbey. Um, and so even if you haven't seen the show, I think that uh, that this will make sense for if you watch British costume dramas, uh, this will be relevant. <laughs> and I think that you will um, relate to a lot of the ideas in it and why we find find these stories and these landscapes and uh, this period of time um, so appealing. And I think a lot of it has to do with tradition and ritual, things that we are craving in modern life. Uh, so, so I hope that you enjoy this essay. I'll put a link to it in the show notes. And again, there are some spoilers. So if you haven't watched Downton Abbey, just uh, put a pause here, watch the whole series, and then come back and listen. <laughs> It won't take you that long, really. It's really addictive. It's a huge cast, so when you first start, it can be a little overwhelming, um, but I just the first few episodes, and I think you'll be hooked. So um, anyway, let's let, let's launch into that. That will that will be the bulk of this episode, uh, discussing the aesthetics slash rituals of Downton Abbey. The success of Downton Abbey is in some ways hard to fathom. Initially a relatively low-budget period costume dra drama on ITV, the series launched six successful seasons, is beloved by fans the world over, and has spun off into major motion pictures. So what is so appealing about this high-class Yorkshire family and their assortment of staff navigating life in the early 20th century? Is it the excellent dialogue, the flawed characters, the historical accuracy, the ongoing struggle with modernity? I think all of these aspects of the show greatly contribute to its appeal, but I would argue that it is the consistent aesthetic of Downton Abbey that is responsible for its enduring success. After all, Julian Fellows has many gifts, but plot development isn't one of them. In fact, I think we all watch the show in spite of the Bates jail time sagas. Many storylines dripped with soap opera cliches, 
Lady Edith running off to Switzerland to give birth to her child, the many times Lady Mary almost ruined the family with scandal, a man dead in her bed, no less, the family's repeated bouts of bankruptcy thanks to Lord Grantham's apparent inability to read the stock market. Remember this line? (laughs) There's a chap in America, what's his name? Charles Ponzi, who offers a huge return after 90 days. If I could find out... (laughs) The series wasn't exactly thrilling when it came to storyline, but it was incredibly charming. I also don't discount the excellent character development that resulted from truly well-written relationships between Mary and Matthew, the Dowager and Isabel, Mrs. Patmore and Daisy, etc. While some journalists are decrying Downton as Brexit propaganda, most of us agree with Michelle Dockery when she called the show escapism. There is undoubtedly a level of nostalgia that accounts for the series' charm. But what exactly are we escaping from? Of course we love the epic vistas, the lavish clothes, the grand manor houses. These are all beautiful aspects of the show, but there is more to the aesthetic of Downton. The series presents a highly romanticized vision of life where people knew their place in the world. While most of us don't envy the hardworking lives of the servants downstairs, we appreciate that they are there. Whether you were the Countess of Grantham or the lowest ranking kitchen maid, you had a sense of duty toward others. The Banner House existed, as we are repeatedly told by both staff and Lord G, to provide jobs for the village. The Crawley family was not just a group of simpering rich people, but a grand family with a historic legacy to preserve. This included managing tenants, employing a vast household of staff, throwing banquets for just causes, and generally acting as a center point for village life. We need only look at the modern obsession with the current British royal family to see that people crave order, beauty, nobility, and centrality. When Mary rides through town in her carriage on her wedding day, the entire village is celebrating, waving flags and looking on in awe at the pageantry. Most of them have never met Lady Mary, but it doesn't matter. For the village, she is an idea. She is the promise of something beautiful, good, and noble. Of course, as in any good story, characters rarely live up to their ideals. Isn't there such a deep satisfaction seeing Carson organize the dinner table just so? The dinner fork, the dessert spoon, etc., all in precisely the right spot. The family needs to change into formal wear for dinner, even if it is only to sit and chat with the same people they see every single day. I always marvel at how lazily and sloppily we tend to dress in modern times when we are constantly photographing ourselves and one another, yet in a time when you were rarely, if ever photographed, people felt a much stronger need to look presentable. After all, your appearance not only conveyed your rank and class, it conveyed respect. For your family, your employer, your guests. In a chaotic world, the rules of society are grounding. Existentially, they create meaning. Theologically, they reflect meaning. Of course, there are people pushing the boundaries of this classism. The idealistic Lady Sybil, jazzed on life as a working woman during the war, runs off with the socialist chauffeur, Tom Branson. But even these wild storylines are quickly put back in their place. Sybil dies and Tom becomes a beloved son-in-law and the land agent for the estate, even deigning to wear tails at dinner and dance with the old dowager at parties. Downton also presents us with a world of sport and good manners. Is there anything more satisfying than seeing a group of good riders cheerfully challenge one another to a point-to-point? Twice the series features the family out fox hunting, a subcategory of social life that had its own rules, manners, and obligations. 
The strict expectations of this culture are deeply satisfying to modern minds confused by a world of no rules and no obligations. And while no Crawley family member will win a parenting award, indeed the poor children barely achieve 30 minutes screen time in the whole series, the show does present a coherent family life where parents and family legacies are respected, valued, and preserved. Again, duties and obligations towards spouses are clear. How refreshing. And don't they all look dashing while they do it? Downton Abbey may, at the end of the day, present us with a fantasy. A fantasy where servants are dutiful and well-treated, and lords and ladies ultimately kind and good-hearted. But the fantasy has deep value in a modern world with increasingly few boundaries. It also reminds us that it is laudable to aspire toward good and noble things. One can watch the series content to know that while that dreaded clock keeps ticking, Downton will continue on as it always has. Tradition rebelling against a world of change, most often represented by tough-talking Americans like Cora's mother, is, depending on your perspective, either incredibly noble or incredibly stupid. Nevertheless, the aesthetics, from the clothes to the countryside to the properly set table, remind us that good manners and good taste are essentials in creating a meaningful life. Perhaps when we are feeling a bit glum about the state of the world, we will be reminded of the Dowager's excellent advice. Don't be defeatist, dear. It's very middle class. So I hope you enjoyed that essay about Downton Abbey. Um, of course, you know, if you've watched the show, it it means more to you, probably. <laughs> but uh, but I do think you could sort of sub in a lot of our ideas uh, about the British royal family. If you're wondering why are people so obsessed with the British royal family, I think you could look at why people are so obsessed with shows like Downton Abbey. And it's a sort of very similar motivation. I think it's actually fulfilling um, a, a deep need. And again, maybe at the end of the day, it's a fantasy. Maybe it's 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 a lot of make-believe going on, but um, it's make-believe that is, that is being put in a very real place in our hearts that, that desires this, this sense of tradition and continuity. And I do think, um, I think that there is something in us that that wants uh wants a noble leader right you can you can go back and listen to return of the king the return of the king episode i did around easter um the the longing uh that is represented in in lord of the rings and the return of the rightful just king and how this is sort of a human desire i was actually just uh reading and thinking about how um in the bible in the the old testament in the torah uh, of course god doesn't want the jewish people to have a king but the jewish people want a king so that they can be like all the other nations (laughs) um and 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 so the he he sort of grudgingly allows them to anoint King Saul, the the first monarch of of Israel, of um of, of the Jewish people. And uh, I think that sort of God's reluctance to crown a human monarch is because we tend to put divine uh, attributes onto uh, human frail human beings uh and when really our longing for a king is longing for the king of the universe is longing for uh for for the second coming is and and at the time in in um in the torah is longing for the messiah the and if you look at the way uh that isaiah describes the messiah this is not 
uh, a king that we would recognize. And of course, Christ's uh, incarnation is not a king in the sense of, uh, of an earthly king. We don't see too much pageantry there. We don't see too much, um, we, we don't see Christ going around in a gilded carriage. The, the best we get is him coming into town uh, on a donkey, <laughs> um, right? So, so, so it's a very different idea of kingship. God's idea of kingship is not our idea of kingship, but we clearly have that longing um, uh, for for a true uh, to follow. We want we want to fo- we want to follow a real leader, a worthy leader. And I think that um, at its best, uh, you know, a, a show like Downton Abbey, um, a person like Queen Elizabeth II, um, we sort of project these um, these yearnings onto them uh, for 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 tradition, for continuity, and for leadership. Uh, for just leadership, um, so so a lot to think about there. Uh, but but I think that that maybe uh, in the meantime, as we try as we try to sort of retain and uh, and rediscover uh, traditions in our own lives, um, create them with our families, we can go ahead and watch shows like Down Abbey, things like that. <laughs> inspire us let us escape a little bit um but also just help help us understand what we're what we're sort of longing for when we when we engage with these ideas Uh, i'm going to end the episode today with with some beautiful music but with the soundtrack from sense and sensibility my friend uh just finished the book i think it was her first time reading it actually Uh, she'd only seen the movie before and um, so it just got me thinking about how much I love that movie, uh, you know, with, with Colonel Brandon, um, Alan Rickman as Colonel Brandon. I think that was one of my first crushes in life. Uh, him, him reading poetry, you know, just did everything for me. So uh, it's a beautiful film. It really is. Um, so uh, and the music is really beautiful. And so this this uh, this piece is called There Is Nothing Lost, which is is taken from the scene when Colonel Brandon is reading poetry to Marianne. So uh, I think, you know, Jane Austen, of course, gives us gives us a, a beautiful sense of tradition as well. Of course, Jane Austen is very interesting because I think she she sort of pushes the pushes on the boundaries, brings up a lot of the brings a lot of attention to what is arbitrary about certain traditions, uh, while also always sort of landing squarely within it is very, very interesting. But um, yeah, so Jane Austen just seemed appropriate. Uh, great British author uh, to, to end here. Um, so uh, I realized I didn't really do an introduction, just sort of launch into it. So <laughs> I'll just remind you to go to bornofwonder.com uh, where you can contact me. You can read essays like the one that I read today. You can sign up for my email list. I send an, uh, a little newsletter. Uh, around the first week of every month or so. Um, you can support the podcast on Patreon, link in the show notes, link on the website, $2 a month. Uh, that would be amazing, so helpful. Uh, and of course, you can leave a review on iTunes. That would just be be amazing uh, and leave a star rating on Spotify. It's so important to the podcast. I so appreciate it. And if you uh, like what you hear, you know, maybe share the episode uh, or one of your one of your favorite episodes with a friend. I would I would so appreciate that. So as always, I'm Katie Marquette, and this is Born of Wonder. Thank you so much for listening.
here there is something more than just a transient experience. It's about uh, being. It's about the things that matter to me. It's about the white spaces between the paragraphs. Then God said, let there be light. It's a mistake you always made, Doc, trying to love a wild thing. <laughs>